Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. Our guest today is Sheila Chandra, lead singer of the British band Monsoon. They first created Waves in 1982 when their hit song Ever So Lonely made it on the UK charts. The band ended up dissolving but Sheila embarked on her own solo career and went on to release several albums. In 2002, she was in the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers movie soundtrack in the song Breath of Life, where she completely sings in Elvish. Sadly, in 2010, she developed a rare chronic condition called Burning Mouth Syndrome, which made it extremely difficult for her to speak. So it's really kind of her to talk to us today. It's a very special episode, and let's get started. So here we go. It's really nice to meet you. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I understand that you have a a medical issue that makes it really hard for you to talk. Do you want to discuss that? Yeah, sure. I have. um, Well, it started when I was uh, had a car crash in a very minor car crash in 92. And uh, unfortunately, I had detached retinas. So they needed to I needed to have an emergency operation to save my sight. And they, because it was an emergency operation and they were rather hurried, they uh, damaged one of my vocal cords when they were intubating me, which produced a a permanent twist in my larynx due to the scarring. Um, So I had a problem with that. um, And speech and singing were painful because it's a very serious issue for a, a very athletic vocalist to have. And then that probably primed my system for pain. So then in 2010, I developed burning mouth syndrome, which is neurological pain in my mouth when I speak. So I have the pain from the twist in the larynx in my throat and the pain from uh, uh, the uh, neurological pain in my mouth. And it means that I have to ration the amount that I speak. So when I start speaking, it will start hurting. And then the more I speak, the the bigger the pain gets and longer lasting it is. So I um, I only speak for a very limited amount of time per week, but I do need to speak because otherwise my vocal mechanism would atrophy and I'd sound right. very rusty. So um, yeah, so uh, speech just has to be scheduled in. So, yeah. which is why this is a really big deal that you're, you know, going through all that just to talk to me. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And this situation is really profound because it asked the question, what, what do you do when what you do, you can't do anymore? You know, music has been your whole life. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's your medium for creativity. And, and, you know, it's your number one thing. And all of a sudden, you're stopped from doing th- that. It's like, what would happen to Michelangelo if he can't paint? What would happen to Stephen King if he can't write anymore? So I want to know what, like, what that is like, that you're not able to do what you do. Well, in a word, it's frustrating. Um, and uh, there is a big grief process. But I, for singers, it's also an identity problem because people identify you with your voice and what you can do. And in a way, the skill you have as a singer is, is what people want you for. Mm-hmm. And uh, it becomes such a, an identity thing. You must don't know who you are if you can't sing, if you're not a singer. So there's a whole remaking process that, of identity that one needs to go through. Who am I if I'm not a singer? I mean, who would, who would Michelangelo be without a painter? The minute we say Michelangelo, we say painter, sculptor. Those are the two words that follow his name. So um, it's a similar problem. And in my case, uh, I had been writing a journal for a long time, uh, just for my own, uh, well, you know, mental health, as it were, good mental health. And um, writing became my new voice. So uh, it became, uh, I needed, obviously, I needed to find a new purpose and a way of expressing myself. And writing became that. So I became a nonfiction author in 2010. 
And I also now uh, coach artists from around the world via video call. So, wow. It, yeah, because what I, I didn't want what I knew to go to waste. Right. Um, and usually when you have coaches, they're not professional artists themselves. They haven't worked at all, you know, lots of levels in the industry. Um, for someone who had a hit when they were 16, you know, I've, I've been there. You know, I've been in those meetings with the majors and I've also worked on independent labels by choice and not really singles by choice. So, you know, I have the experience of the kinds of creative and business problems that a lot of artists face. And I didn't want that to go to waste. So, um, you know, my loss can be someone else's gain. I'm not too busy sustaining an artistic career. Right. So that means I have time to coach people. But you you started really really young uh, in the arts, uh, you know. Right at I mean, I want to go even go even more back and wanted to know because it's very it's very hard to find someone who's in who's been in the artist industry from the generation that came to England from I think the seventies, sixties, eighties. So I want to know how your family ended up in England. Well, I had unconventional grandparents in that uh, my grandmother, although she was born in India, she was white. And uh, I don't know much about the family history on her side before that. So I'm not sure if it was her fam- her parents who had emigrated or even further back than that. But she and my uh, grandfather, um, and he was fairly high caste, not a Brahmin, but fairly high caste Hindu. Um, they met and she was... Um, I think she was married or divorced. She had three uh, children by her first husband already. And they fell in love in the 20s. Wow. Uh, which in South India was a big deal. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, Talk of um, the town. Yeah, absolutely. You could imagine the ructions. Anyway, um, so I'm three quarters Indian. And there was always this link back to uh, England because there was this sort of biological link. And when, uh, I'm not sure all your listeners will necessarily know this, but at that time, um, Commonwealth citizens, um, uh, you know, even after uh, independence in 47, Commonwealth citizens had a free right of entry to the UK. And that was about to be changed in 62. Um, they, they were going to restrict um, entry from Commonwealth, yeah, immigration from Commonwealth countries. And... Um, at that point, my family decided, well, we, you know, we need to get our act together if, if any of us want to go to England then. So my mother came over in 62, just before the uh, the act came in. And uh, then my father followed her and then they got married. And uh, so my sister and I were born in England. What was that? What was it like being raised in England in the 60s, 60s 70s? Because the 60s were really, you had national front, you had racism on a high protests happening i mean it was vicious and and then um and then the 70s weren't that easy either so what was it like for you to and and you really you look indian so you are a target for any any racist attacks out there so what is it like for you to grow up in the in the 60s 70s um yeah it was the bad old 60s and 70s um I think particularly in the 70s, as the economic problems, you know, Britain became what they call the sick man of Europe. And I think when uh, things are going wrong economically in wider society, then you tend to get more scapegoating, you know, as we've had a post-Brexit of minority groups. Right. Um, 
so I remember this. I mean, of course, I only was old enough to remember the 70s, but um, you had um, you had National Front activity. You had fear of going out alone. And, you know, if you were a big group, you didn't tend to go out alone. The kind of um, what I call that kind of unconscious veiling of hostility where you go into a shop and people treat you politely. But, you know, there's kind of nothing behind the eyes, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And... I think the psychological impact of that is that ideally when you grow up, when you're very young, what you want is a family that makes you, that embraces you emotionally and makes you feel that the world is an okay, safe place. When you can feel from your friends and neighbours, well, not friends, obviously, but from neighbours, and you know that the world is not a safe place, it does impact your your self-image. It does impact you psychologically in a way that I think therapists in the west don't necessarily acknowledge you know it's ironic you can go to a therapist and if you've suffered any sort of abuse or trauma in your family you know then all families have you know a bereavement or someone with a chronic illness or so you know right. as kids we've all been through something and they'll painstakingly spend 30 sessions picking through that with you but when you mentioned that you know um the national front were uh, parading not far away and you were being called a packy by neighbours, um, that kind of trauma is like not important. <laughs> we don't spend 30, 30 sessions unpicking that and yeah. we don't talk about how that impacted the formation of your character when you were only five years old. Right. And it's to- that's totally crazy. Especially uh, totally at that crazy. Especially at that time, exactly. You know, we're supposed to completely have gotten over it because racism is over now, isn't it? You know, and... Um, this is, you know, people thinking that uh, racism is over if you, if you aren't being beaten up in the street. Um, so, you know, things, even that level of awareness has changed in the last 10 years. But, you know, further on, when you're trying to deal with the consequences of growing up in the 70s, even then you come up against the next barrier, which is the sort of lack of understanding in the people who should be supporting you. Um yeah. How else were they? I think in the media was the other big impact because the British media, mainstream media, spent most of its time discussing the Asian community as a social problem. Mm. It was very biased coverage. It was all about how we wouldn't integrate. And it was all about how, um, you know, uh, it was a problem having um, a community with such a strong cultural identity. I think they had less of a problem with the black community in the sense that because of slavery that sort of uh, pride about one's history and knowledge of one's history and one's language one's culture and one's religion is a you know it's it's a more unbroken line from India uh, than you get with people who've migrated from the Caribbean yes they've got Caribbean culture but they're maybe disconnected from the West African roots the kingdom of Benin the 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 huge sort of history of African empires and mm-hmm. African spirituality. So anyway, we were getting a lot of negative press. And this was the era where no, no Asian news readers, no Asian um, uh, uh, radio present, or well, hardly any except unless they were specialist uh, uh, radio programs, no Asian uh, mainstream radio presenters. Um, and 
chicken tikka masala in the UK supermarket or chicken tikka masala being regarded as a sort of national dish, which if you're from the UK, will know how ubiquitous that was. There was none of that. Um, you did not see people of colour on washing adverts. There was an unofficial exclusion policy because brown skin was associated with dirt. I mean, that's how far back we're going. Wow. So makeup ads. I mean, you never saw someone with an olive skin. It was English roses all the way. Yikes. There was, there was just no one to aspire to. You couldn't get makeup for olive skin unless it was in very specialist shops. You had to use all this pink pancake powder stuff and, <laughs> you know, that powder blue eyeshadow. Yeah. You know, this, this, is, the, this is the era. I mean, the, the level of exclusion and the level of othering and the, and the level of um, uh, uh, you know, subtle propaganda against because of all this sort of Eurosocial problem stuff. And then uh, I think the only positive carryover was the, the trips that the Beatles had made to India in the 60s. But that was very much dissociated from the Asian diaspora in the UK. Right. So, when I was 16 and I was head of, you know, fronting this Asian fusion band called Monsoon and we had this top 10 global hit called Ever So Lonely, which was basically an Indian, it was written on Raga Jog and it was basically Indian classical Raga with piano and crash beats, very trend, crash beats were very trendy at the time and tabla and jaws harp and, and Chinese gong and it was in this, was set in this sea of synth pop because synths are just, uh, become democratized they and and everybody was using them and it was the sound and there'd been this great leap forward of technology and um the suddenly there was this acoustic sound that was not like nothing else it was five years before the term world music was invented and so for me to be on top of the pops in a purple silk sari with a tilak on my head it's very obviously asian very obviously asian sound yeah. this was like it was that positive, first, first, positive, yeah. first positive representation we were looking for. And suddenly for a little while there, we were cool. But here's, here's a very interesting thing here. Before you started your music career, you, you were an actress and mm -hmm. you were on this show. I'm not from the UK, but apparently it's a show that's been going on for like 30 years. And it's called Grunge Hill, if I'm pronouncing <laughs> it right. <laughs> it's called Grange Hill. Grange Hill, sorry. And... Here you are discussing how hard it was to grow up in this kind of society and the trauma that it can bring to uh, a young girl. It can make you feel worthless or less than, and it can make you feel scared and insecure. And there's no one to look up to. Where where did you get the guts to put yourself in camera at age 14? Because I think you were the only South Asian girl in that show or one of one of the only ones. And you're only 14 and you put yourself in front of everybody to look at and to judge you. So I was curious to know, like, how did you come up with the courage to just put yourself out there? Well, um, it was by a fluke of fate, really, that I, I went to a theatre arts school called the Italia Conti Academy. And uh, a theatre art school is in England anyway, it, uh, is where you do uh, three hours a day of arts subjects like ballet and tap and modern dance and acting and so on. And then three hours a day of academic subjects that you would expect at, at high school. Um, 
And the reason I got there was because I was a really skinny youngster and I wouldn't eat, you know, I was one of those typical, uh, you know, really, really skinny Asian kids. And my mum, uh, I was not getting any exercise because I was not getting outside because of the danger. Mm-hmm. And so my mum sent me to local, um, you know, a little dance school that did ballet and tap and things. And, um, and then I was at primary school. I was really, really lazy. And they just couldn't get me to work. And there was this private school, um, theatre art school, that wasn't far away. And it was a bribe, really. My mum said, okay, you like these subjects. You can do them for three hours a day and we'll get you a scholarship to go. But the only way you can keep your scholarship is you if you're really good with your academic subjects. So that was the bribe. And that school had a had an agency where um, they... Um, found work for child actors and of course when the BBC was um, scouting for for Grange Hill they came around and auditioned at our school as well as Anna Shear and all the other stage schools in London at the time so um, I was I was an extreme introvert and I didn't really think of putting myself out there but kind of by a fluke I was um, I auditioned and I got it Um, well how did yeah. you, as a for an introvert, for an extreme introvert, how did you handle all that, all that collaboration and and being on set and dealing no, with people? No, not particularly well. <laughs> not particularly well. I mean, these are kids that burst into song as soon as the camera's off and are doing time steps, you know. And um, all you have to do is yell five, six, seven, eight, and they'll all do something. <laughs> and um, you know that old vaudeville joke of when you get up in the middle of the night and you open the fridge and the light comes on, you do five minutes, that kind of personality. And I I, um, I just kept myself to myself. And I found that actually I found that quite difficult as an introvert to be around all those extreme extroverts all the time. But it did keep me focused on my um on my academic work. And the, the nice thing about Grange Hill was although it was a children's drama, it was gritty and groundbreaking especially in those days because what you'd had up to the to the 70s was a depiction of in children's stories of upper class children at private schools so you had all that sort of Billy Bunter um, just William all those sort of 50s stories of of kids in uniform uh, speaking with a posh accent mm-hmm. who are jolly good jolly good sorts you know those sorts of jolly hockey sticks kind of yeah. kids. And the thing about Grange Hill was it was shocking and some kids were, parents banned their kids from watching it because um, it was working class kids facing things like dyslexia, shoplifting, um, later on they tackled drugs, um, you know, all sorts of uh, um, gritty stuff. So, you know, a nice project to be part of from that point of view. So how did you go from that to uh, your music career? Uh, well, the agency again, I was, um, uh, it was discovered that I could sing. My voice broke when I was 14 and it was discovered that I could sing. And so I was sent for an audition with Hansa Records, who at that time had Boney M. So, I mean, they were, Boney M were absolutely massive and sold squillions of records. Um, and Hansa were looking to put, put together, um, an early boy girl band, um, of 14 to 18 year olds, which actually legally is quite difficult because there are all sorts of restrictions on how kids up to 16 can, how long they can work and when they can work and all that sort of stuff. Right. 
um, which is why you tend to get boy and girl bands now with people over 16. Obviously, it's much, much easier. But anyway, they had this idea to put that together. And uh, we made, they had me do some um, demo tapes. Nothing came of that project. But um, Steve Coe, who was the writer behind Monsoon, who, who had been listening to his neighbours in the film records from the, from the golden era, from the 60s, that were all folk and classical influenced, um, he found that influence coming out in his writing, wanted to put a band together, thought I probably will have to get the Asian personnel from the sort of Siddha and Tabla side, mm-hmm. was looking for a singer, happened to know the receptionist at Hansa Records. Two years later, he's up there saying, who've you got? Um, and she just pulled out an old demo box and there was a, a demo that there was my demo still in there. Wow. Another fluke. Yeah, absolute fluke. So he plays the demo He's only heard my voice at this point. He goes, that is the voice of Monsoon and says to her, can I see a photo? She pulls a photo from the file. I'm Asian. So he found probably the only Asian singer of the right age in the UK with TV experience at that time. It's just wow. one of those synchronicity things. And, and it's very impressive that this was all done at like when you were age 16 and you made it to the charts. Was it rough for... Um... To get a major, uh, to get a major record studio to to sign up for you guys, sign up with you guys because you're not only are you you don't look like anybody else, but at the same time your music is very different than what was happening at that mm. time. I think uh, I think 1982, Eye of the Tiger came out. Yeah, <laughs> 1983, Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, but yeah, it's that it's that era. It's that OMD. Vibe. It's Duran Duran. It's Spandai Ballet. Battle of those two at the top of the charts. Yes. So as I've said, it was a sea of synth. And um, we made a four-track EP in 81 and uh, sent it to record companies and no one was interested at all. And um, But again, we were lucky. There was this guy at Phonogram who had just started a small label which was focused on featuring music of the Far East because he'd been travelling in the Far East and had heard all these interesting bands And by chance, his logo had um, that uh, sort of picture of that section of the world on it and happened to include India. Mm. And uh, when this demo came in, the A&I guy there, Dave Bates, said, um, why don't you consider this band as well? Because it's kind of in your area. It's Asia, even if it's near Asia rather than the Far East. And so we kind of got in through the back door, through this specialist label. And um, Dave Bates was great because he secretly, well, I think it was secretly, gave us his demo budget for the year, wow. sent us down to Rockfield to record, and we spent it all on the A-side, on Ever So Lonely. And we came back with a sound where, you know, the minute people heard it, they'd switch off the tape and say, okay, what do you want? When that song came out, like it hit the, it was a hit, Ever So Lonely, mm-hmm. it hit the charts. Well, it wasn't hitting America because America is very album orientated. So anywhere where there was singles orientated, yes. Um, in in the UK, it was a hit, right? Yeah. So I wanted to know how the South Asian community responded to you because you're wearing in the music video, you're wearing a sari. There's camels. Uh, there's sand. Oh, you're 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 thinking of the German TV appearance we did. That isn't that's, a video. That's isn't the that's video. Not a video. That's oh, TV appearance from that's German a TV. TV. Appearance. Oh, yeah. wow. And they brought in camels. 
<laughs> and you know that whole sand dune set? It's made yeah. of sandpaper. And I was barefoot. So I was spinning bare sandpaper. You know, you're you're out there now and people are recognizing you and seeing your face there. How did the South Asian community respond to you at that time? I mean, it must be a big deal, I guess, at the time to see you up there. It was. Um, and I think in, and that was partly good and partly bad because um, I'm at the older edge of the second generation. So I'm 16, a lot of the second generation much younger than me. Um, and they didn't necessarily have a voice that I would um, get to hear. I didn't get any of my fan mail um, from uh, Phonogram, unfortunately. So I didn't get uh, the kind of personal reaction you would get these days from social media, where it's very much more easy for people to tell you what they think of your work and whether yeah. they've liked it or not. What you did get was this... Um, there was in some quarters quite a trepidatious reaction from the older generation who felt that I was diluting the culture. Older, and, you know, older South Asian community, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, absolutely. First generation. Okay. And like, we have this fantastic classical tradition with all these rules and you have just broken them, you know, and they're like, what is this? Oh <laughs> and, um, you know, they hadn't, the, a younger generation, the second generation weren't old enough yet for them to have realised that culture has to remain living and it has to become part of its context. It has to take its context in, into account and it has to put down new roots. Right. And that what Monsoon were doing was very, very healthy. It was a way of making sure that there was a path back to Indian classical music because there's a moment and you've got to remember, this is five years before world music and the song broke in the UK gay clubs. These were mainstream clubs that were playing. And at first, the record was so different, it would clear the floor. And then when pe once people got used to the sound, it would pack the floor, consistently pack the floor. So you've got mainstream clubs, people who really know nothing about their Asian neighbours. And when... The other cell only 12 inch is really well constructed. It's not one of those songs that's constructed as a seven inch and then extended out into a 12 inch. It was constructed as a 12 inch and then edited down to a seven inch. So there's this, there's, there's this moment in the instrumental of the 12 inch. You were dancing along, it's really catchy ever so low, 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 low. And great, everybody sings that because it's so simple. And it's almost like a mantra. And then uh, you get the middle eight, then, uh, you get, then you get the instrumental break. And what happens in instrumental break? You start pulling out, you start pulling out some of the, inst the instruments, don't you? And then you build it back up to the end choruses. That's what you do. So everything gets pulled out, the piano, the bass. Um, everything gets pulled out until what you're dancing to is sitar, tabla, hmm. jaws harp, and a lot of Chinese gong. You are dancing to a classical raga. Everybody wow. is dancing to a classical raga with this song they love. And the, more, the, the most important thing is it was their own. This is my song. This is my music. This expresses what I feel. The big difference since world music is there's, there's been a kind of, well, there's been a structural apartheid in the sense that if you're a world music act, your sales don't count towards the mainstream charts. If you sell, outsell Madonna for a day, assuming you were that lucky, Nobody would ever know because they're not being counted for the same chart. You get, you get interviewed on different programs. You get reviewed in different magazines. So there's this structural apartheid. But there's also what comes with that is a psychological apartheid. This music is other than me. This is not 
the music that speaks my heart. And you kind of had that with uh, the blues in, you know, up to the 30s and 40s. And then post-rock and roll, suddenly black music becomes everyone's music. Mm. No one listens to Beyonce and says, that's black music. Everyone says, that's a great tune. That expresses what I feel. And we have yet to make that leap, and I don't know if we ever will, because we've set up a huge structural barrier now that kind of others yeah. certain sounds. It sounds like you're, uh, you were ahead of your time. And yeah, and for this, this year marks 40 years since Ever Saloni was a hit, and Cherry Red have just put together a deluxe package, including some six unreleased tracks that have never been heard before. Um, they're re-releasing the... Um, the monsoon album third eye on the 25th of november wow and the first orders you get a signed postcard as well and um yeah it's a really nice little package the thing about the monsoon tracks are because we were um we were surrounded by you know the sea of synth pop when you get those uh, uh golden oldie programs that look back 40 years and play the hits they tend to play the typical hits They don't tend to play ever so lonely because it sticks out like a sore thumb in a way. It, it isn't of the time. It isn't. And it, and it was a, it was a single hit. It's not like we had a string of hits. So, mm -hmm. um, it, it, and the Monsoon album has not been available on CD for a long time. It's been very hard to find, even if you want to stream it. So now it will, it will get that little, um, blip of, you know, that little bump of recognition 40 years on. How'd your parents take you going into music? Because you just mentioned that you were from a, it was a conservative society. So how did your parents deal with that? I think they were okay while they understood me being famous when I was sort of splashed on the cover of front cover of Sounds and NME and being interviewed on mainstream TV. Um, they didn't like the idea of once I gave that up because Monsoon broke up because our second single didn't do so well. Our third single bombed and... Um, The album was only released after the band disbanded. The record company threw the contract at us and said, drop the Indian influence. And we said, no. And, uh, you know, I think in those days and, and still to some degree, people see other cultures as something that you put on like a costume mm. and then you take off. Uh, or like a curry sauce in a jar and then you go back to normal cooking. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I couldn't understand why they didn't see that we had thousands of years of music and culture to explore as a band. And they're saying, like, we've done it, drop it. And <laughs> you've got simple minds whose image is wearing Max, and you call that deep, <laughs> you, you, and you ignore 4,000 years of culture. So um, I decided I didn't want to work with a major again. Wow. Because I didn't want to be pushed around. Right. And I also, I knew that when you play the singles game, you can understand it. The singles game is a very, very expensive game. Right. You can spend $100,000 on a video. Um, you know, in those days, you could spend $50,000 on an album. And, you know, uh, that would have bought you three houses. Not in London, but, you know, <laughs> would have bought you three UK houses. So when a company spends that much money on you, they feel entitled to um, direct you because they want their money back. They want to make their money back. So I decided I wasn't going to play the uh, singles game because it was too expensive and it would dictate how I 
explored this field, which I was really, really excited about. Um, and I think my family were less comfortable with me being a singer when there was no glory attached to it. And I think that was oh. the res respectability factor because, you know, it's very, uh, very hard to criticise someone's daughter for being a singer when they're on top of the pops. Right. You can say, oh, she's a singer, that's terrible. Because, um, uh, you know, being in the arts is... <laughs> It's terrible being a singer or a dancer or an actress is terrible for your reputation. Um, but, you know, then your parent can come back with, well, you know, she's all over TV and she's famous and you're just jealous kind of thing. Right. But um, if you're a very obscure singer making very unmainstream sounds on an independent label and not receiving mainstream attention as a result, that is much harder to justify and fight. But you've you had like you you've had success like it wasn't as if you weren't uh, successful you've had success so shouldn't that that should kind of spill over to your solo career I you, would assume. you can say you can say that but it didn't <laughs> okay so now you're in now you're alone basically in your solo career you don't have much support from the community or your family and you don't have uh, abandoned oh I never to... had much support from the community I mean partly it's because um, there was this this uh, reservation from the older generation, but it's also because I'm not one of the big demographics here in the UK. I'm not Punjabi or Gujarati. I'm not Hindu or Muslim. I'm not Sikh. The South, mm. Indian, uh, South Indian community is very, very small. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, there was some sectarianism, especially in the late 80s. Wow. How, how did your, how was life as a solo artist? I think you released five albums. Yep. I was so, uh, I, I didn't want to play live because I didn't want to play the same song 20 or 30 times when I could be doing more experiments in the studio. So I made four solo albums in two years and I was too busy learning my job and developing as an artist to worry too much about the lack of support from um, India who looked down their nose at, at the music making in the diaspora in those days um, or uh, from communities in the UK um, I had enough of an audience because of I kind of cashed in my fame chips as it were I had enough of an audience because of the hit with Monsoon to sell enough records to keep going and that was all that mattered to me um, I was still living with my uh, family so um, you know that was possible to do and um, I started to write songs at the age of 19 with my second solo album, Quiet, which was a, an album of 10 lyricless soundscapes using voices and instruments, so voice layered up with various techniques. Um, so it sort of in, influenced, you know, the second, you should, if you put a pen in a vocalist's hand, what you get is loads of vocals. <laughs> so it's quite obvious, really, um, the influence there. And um, I was just too busy to notice in many ways. There was just there was just so much to learn and so much. I didn't understand the recording process. I needed to learn about that. I needed to learn what was possible. I needed to learn what my voice was capable of. And I need to, needed to explore all these amazing, amazing techniques and styles, which were suddenly accessible to me. I had a sabbatical between uh, 85 and 1991. Why? Why? What was the reason for the break? Well, uh, the situation with my family had become untenable and I left and had no contact with anyone I'd known. Um, mm -hmm. I married Steve Coe and we moved up north. Steve Coe was a founder, member of Monsoon. Yes. And uh, uh, 
and I had a, a sabbatical so that I could explore vocal technique in more depth and kind of recover from because at that point I've been working since I was 12 years old on Grange Hill right to the age of 20 I've been in the charts I've recorded four albums in two years I you know I've kind of needed a bit of a break and then what happened when the break was over I came back with Roots and Wings in 91 I got fed up with working with very tiny independent labels um because they kept going bankrupt on us and then went to real world Peter Gabriel's label and made a yes. trilogy for real world in the 90s how was he like how was the how was the relationship between you and him Oh, he doesn't get involved in the day-to-day stuff. I mean, it's not like artists <laughs> going in and saying, where are my royalties? I'm banging the desk. You know, right. it's not like that. Um, he has business manager and label managers and label A&R and you know, all those people who do that those jobs because he's busy doing his creative stuff. So, Right. Um, I think Real World at that time were very um, African artist heavy. I mean, they were one of the official world music labels and they had a – a huge reputation for high quality recordings because they had real world studios and they used to, uh, you know, put uh, artists in there to record. Um, And that was one reason to go to them. Um, I I noticed they had a very male heavy roster and a very African heavy roster. So I thought, well, what you need is a South Asian woman. And I want to make some really high quality recordings and I can um, structure the deal so that I can do that. Um, they also had a very artist friendly reputation. And in fact, I signed all three albums to them unheard and pre before they were mixed. And they signed, you know, they were happy to sign on those albums um, because they trusted me. And they're all solo voice albums. So they're quite challenging. Um, you know, at the, at the same time, um Throughout the decades in the in the UK, there were a lot of uh, South Asian musicians emerging. There was uh, MC Punjabi, there was Jay Sean, there was a lot like that. Did you ever, you know, come together and kind of, I guess, collaborate or maybe not even collaborate, but just kind of meet up and just complain not, about stuff? Not a huge amount. I am I, because um, I, there, there tends to be an Asian festival circuit and a, and a world music circuit. And I was more on the world music circuit. I yes. did meet up with Joy and talk to them about collaborating, although nothing sort of came uh, of that. And they later signed to Real World. So they were on more on that world music side. Um, yeah. And then Asian Underground was late 90s. So, you know, that because of uh, Asian clubs and things growing up in the early 90s. So, um, uh, you had Nusrat Fatali Khan, I think, who, who collaborated with Peter Gabriel also. Did you meet yeah, him? Yeah, I did meet him. I'd met him at the Womad Yokohama in 1992. Wow. We just had a little chat, but... Um, That's iconic. Amazing singer, absolutely amazing. Um, but I think his collaborations with Michael Brook were perfect. I don't think I would have been a great collaborator for him. Um, you want someone that balances you out, that offers a different uh, set of techniques or skills or, or what have you. So um, coming from this sort of the same tradition as him, I think um, he was better off working with Michael Brook. Um, so I wanted to play live for the first time. I've been a very shy studio artist. And in 92, mm-hmm. I thought, well, now I have to crack this now. I have to. Wait, so you didn't, you didn't have a concert? You released your song in 82, 83, and you didn't perform live in front of an audience until 92? 
We had one uh, concert at the Bartia Vidya Bhavan in South Kensington in London in 1981, but that was really an excuse to get the band together to rehearse. Okay. We did 20 minutes for independent, the Independence Day concert they had there in front of an audience of about 300. But we weren't, you know, in those days, uh, because synths had come in and people were working on a very highly electronic sound, the concept of the studio band was very popular. The idea of a band that only came together in the studio and never never toured was, you know, it was fine. It was a legitimate concept. Mm-hmm. So I'd remained a studio artist until 92. And... Um, I didn't really want to get into the logistics of learning how to tour with musicians and set all that up and um, and learn all the technical stuff at the same time. And, uh, you know, because most artists at my at the level I was then would have loads of live experience in very low-risk uh, circumstances. I see. They'd have see. all that experience to bring with them. Whereas if you're like, if you're the lead singer of, monsoon as was and then you've got this album out on real world and you know and then you go and do a bad gig because you've never done a gig before it's it's, <laughs> it's the stakes are quite a, a different um and i thought okay well i don't i don't want all that complication and moreover i want to learn about stagecraft without anyone else to hide behind so i decided that my first life performances as a solo artist and really ever would be me alone on stage either completely unaccompanied or with a drone. And this presented me with a huge technical problem because by roots and wings, I was layering up, you know, uh, 27 tracks of vocal Mm -hmm. uh, in various different techniques that would all sort of um, weave over and under each other. And you can't take 27 of me on on stage or 23 of me on stage. No. I don't mean 27, I mean 23, because that's how you get 24 tracks on a, on a, two-inch piece of tape. Um, so you can't layer a singer up. And I didn't want to be one of those artists that sort of press the button and <laughs> loads of stuff happens and then they just sing a little bit on top. Yeah. Um, you, want so it to I, be per- you want it to be perfect and, well, and I, true. Well, I wanted it to be real. Yeah, I wanted it to yeah. be real. I didn't want to disappoint people. And also, the, the, the quite amusing, the, because I hadn't played life for the first 10 years of my career, the, the word had gone around the music business that I couldn't sing. Oh, so you're a fake, basically. Yeah, but it was all constructed in the studio. Right. Millie uh, Vanilli. And this was why I never, ever played live, because I couldn't actually sing. Um, so uh, I thought, okay, I'll go on stage alone. And I so, had to... Sorry? Sorry, go ahead. I just want to say that you were there to prove people wrong, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, I had to win them over. And um, I, to do that, to be able to go on stage alone, it's one thing to juxtapose phrases. You could sing a sort of slightly Vedic phrase and then you could sing, uh, I don't know, a slightly English folk phrase and you could find a way of putting them together. But I was more ambitious than that. I wanted to find the gateways in the voice because the voice is the instrument we've had all through time. We know it's the instrument that's, whose construction has not changed for modern humans. So the sounds that our ancestors of 100 generations ago made are the same sounds that we are capable of making. We have the same instrument, allowing for individual variations. Obviously, some of us can sing and some of us can't. But um, so, you know, it also follows that 500 years ago, um, uh, a musician in Asia and a musician in uh, England could be making the same vocal sounds. And I wanted to find the gateways between those vocal techniques. So I had to find a way of 
being able to turn on a dime, really, to be able to go from, uh, um, you know, blues vocal into folk vocal without taking a breath, to be able to go from a 900-year-old Irish song into Arabic-sounding vocal without taking a breath. Wow. And that's what the trilogy does, especially the first two albums, Weaving Manchester's Voices and The Zen Kiss. Um, that's wild. Again, that's impressive. No, no, that's no a one lot of practice. Take, no one wanted to make music like that. I mean, very few singers will make a solo voice album because you're totally exposed. And um, I didn't want it to be boring, so we spent 16 hours uh, on treating the vocal on every single track. Most bands, certainly at that time, will get into the studio for five days, say, to record a single. They'll spend the first day putting down the drums, and then they'll spend days on the guitars and, and all that sort of stuff. And then I'll have about two hours left for the vocal. And then, and the same with the mix, they'll hurriedly put the vocal on the top because it's the last thing to go on. And I know that Weaver Manchester's voice has set a new technical standard in the industry because people, even in the most expensive studios, had simply not bothered to use all that equipment on the voice and they're not bothered to spend that much time on it. So technically, you know, in terms of technology, it was also a leap forward. How was the performance in the end? Uh, yeah, I think so. People reacted very well. Audiences. Were How did very you feel? I, I yeah, I felt good. I wasn't a natural performer. Um, I was a, a more shy studio uh, artist, but it was the, singing that material was extremely satisfying until I started to have voice problems because of the car crash that I was in, right. having my my uh, vocal cords nicked uh, by the um, by the way I was intubated, and then I developed horrible stage fright because it's one thing to stand up there and sing a song nobody knows that's quite easy with a band behind you mm -hmm. if you're giving solo voice performances that people have heard on record and are incredibly virtuoso and you don't know what your voice is going to do that is terrifying yeah and it took me a good well, eight ten years to get over the stage fright so there's another little gap there wow it's almost as if you like you went you restarted your first phase of your career in a way yeah in a way yeah how come you didn't uh, do any more acting gigs was acting not something you wanted to do anymore on the side i didn't act after the age of 16 when i when i uh, came out of grange hill I, there are lots of uh, rules that protect you as an actress uh, until you're 16 in england anyway right and uh, of course you don't have the protection of those rules. and acting was never my thing really it was something that the agency got me into and you know i was kind of obliged to say yes to almost um, singing was always my big, big passion. How did Lord of the Rings come about? Uh, one of the technicians, and I wish I could remember his name, it's very rude of me not to, uh, okay. gave, gave Howard Shaw um, a copy of Moonsung, which is a kind of best of my real world trilogy. Um, Howard Shaw is an amazing film composer. I mean, he did the score for Mrs. Doubtfire and on. I mean, just loads and loads of really, really big films you'll have heard of. And he was doing the, um, the soundtrack for the Lord of the Rings films. They were on the two towers. And a New Line's lawyers from New York just called me up and said, Howard has written this piece for your voice, which was incredible. Mm -hmm. um, because my voice doesn't sit in, you know, it's, it's a contralto voice. It's quite a low voice for a female voice. Um, so, you know, I'm not Marnie Nixon who would go and sing all those quite, you know, high operatic type vocals that you get from the 50s i'm the kind of if i was an actress i'm the kind of actress you'd dub because 
because I have this lower voice. Um, but he had listened to Moonsung and discovered that on certain notes, I hit certain timbres and frequencies, which he liked, and he'd written the melody around those notes. So that was an incredible thing to be able to, to sing. And of course, I'd sung with drones for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And to go into the studio and sing this melody crafted for you with a whole orchestra changing chords underneath, it's like, I used to say it's like the difference between in a t- being in a tiny boat on a still pond and then suddenly being in that boat on a, you know, on a swelling ocean, that the waves of emotion just swell under you. Because the thing about drone is, you know, Indian classical music, the onus is all on the singer or the instrumentalist. The chord, there's no chord change underneath to give emotional color to the melody. You're not being helped out by a key change. Do you know what I mean? Like when right. Whitney Houston goes, am I, you know, and that next key change up. Part of the emotion comes from, yeah, she's a great vocalist, but part of it comes from the key change, from all the, all the instruments underneath, giving her another emotional color. And you don't get that in Indian classical music. There is nothing but the drones, single note or a note with the fifth above it. All the emotional content of the melody has to come from the inventiveness of the singer. That's the challenging thing about unaccompanied singing or or singing with a drone. So, you know, I was used to having to do all the heavy lifting emotionally myself. So suddenly there comes Howard Shaw, this amazingly beautiful, complex, uh, quite dark uh, he wasn't afraid to be dark. It's great. It wasn't saccharine um, uh, arrangement under this vocal line, and I get to sing it. Great. It was wonderful. When when you talk about music, it's so technical and and it's it's very complex. I wonder what you think of the music in this generation now, which isn't really that deep and complex. It's very technological and has autotune and whatnot. How do you feel about music now? There are still marvellous musicians who make my jaw drop, but you haven't necessarily heard of them. Okay. And I I think the problem is that um, music has almost had algorithms applied to it so that uh, it becomes constructed. Sometimes I find it's like being tickled too hard and no one's stopping. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's beautifully Um, said. there's, There's kind of no... Every chorus just takes you to that next level and every middle eight takes you. It's so so perfectly crafted. And I suspect it has been crafted with the use of algorithms. I know there is a very, very expensive apple. There was at least 10 years ago where it had taken in something like 10,000 mega hit tunes and could tell you what was wrong with the construction of your song if you played a new song and make suggestions as to what you should do with those chord structures. So... um, yeah, I think it can be um, over-engineered, and I think that's because uh, music revenues have come down since we've sold less physical product and the stakes have got higher, um, but promoting artists has not got any cheaper. Um, so, yeah, I do find that frustrating, but um, there, is no, there is no limit to musical talent. There is no limit to artistry, and there'll be people doing things I don't understand, and there'll be people doing... That are that are another, nevertheless extremely accomplished, and uh, and there'll be people who are talented but have, who are kind of being forced through that squash sausage machine. It's the only way they can 
really make a career. So even people who do have music that sounds very auto-tuned and over-engineered, I don't think, oh, you're an inferior musician because I don't really know what they're capable of. That's the point. They've been wrapped in a sausage skin. I love the tickling metaphor. I'm going to use that. Um, <laughs> you know, after after you were diagnosed with uh, burning mouth syndrome and, and you really couldn't sing anymore, you started writing a lot of self-help books, as you said earlier. What mm-hmm. what is that like now? And and what kind of uh, what what kind of self-help books are you writing? And and to jump uh, maybe on a follow-up question also, what advice can you give to young South Asian people who are trying to get into the art artists in the music scene by themselves? It's hard. And I think there are less pure financial incentives now than, than there were. It made a lot more sense to be a musician in the um, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even 2000s. Um, I think it's a, it's a whole different ball game and I'm not sure I completely understand it. I'm not sure anyone completely understands it, to be honest. Um, I sometimes say if I had my voice back tomorrow, well, that would be all well and good, but in a way, what kind of music business would there be for me to go back to? I think what you've, what's happened is that, that, um, you know, you've, you used to have three levels of artists and, um, if I may, you, you sort of had your white bread cells in the millions at the top. You had your home bakers making start sourdough starters at home. They're your, your band in a garage before they work their way up. And you, in the middle, you had this, um, you had the artisan bakers. You had the ones that maybe made more expensive loaves of bread, but kind of moving the craft on. Um, and you could also think of it in terms of the rainforest. You have, you have, you know, loads of, useless in inverted commas rainforest which you don't have which which isn't commercialized but actually those people are the seed sowers they're the people mm. who break the musical ground for the next generation who keep things interesting and move music on and that the artisan bakers have kind of been stripped out because it's very difficult for them to survive it would be very difficult for me to survive as someone who doesn't want to release singles and doesn't want to be overtly commercial now um, so that's a great shame because I think, you know, in a way we had a slow food movement here 20 years ago where we recognized the, the value of, um, you know, making all those traditional artisan cheeses the slow way, uh, even though they were a bit more expensive because we didn't want to lose those traditions. And in a way, I think we need to, we need to, we need to rediscover that artisan class of musician again and make it viable for them to exist. We're almost out of time. Um, what are you What are you working on these days? And can you tell us more about this uh, relaunch of your music? Well, uh, the 40th uh, um, uh, anniversary of Eversolonely, there is this deluxe uh, um, reissue on the 20th of November from Cherry Red. It's got new sleeve notes. It's got uh, the only uh, radio session tracks from Monsoon. So the closest you'll ever hear to Monsoon playing live. Uh, we did a session for Capital Radio back in 82. Um, two albums, the two tracks that never made it onto the album. So that's interesting as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'll be busy with that. But also, it's also uh, 30 years this year since my first release with Real World. So they are, we're a little bit behind, but they're reissuing my three albums next May. Wow. So I'm, I'm deep in, you know, putting together the artwork with them for that and, and doing the sort of... Um, general prep and um and talking about the state of the uh the industry then and and now 
And if someone wants to read your books, how will they get access to Amazon? It? Is the Amazon. easiest place, or or support your local independent uh, bookshop bookstores. Go to, go to um, SheilaChandra.com and you'll find all aspects of my career there, um, including links through to the books um, and a proper discography and and stuff like that. Awesome! This was this was lovely. It was very delightful. Thank you so much for doing this. I know it, it, it takes a lot, but this was amazing. It was like that's okay. I hope I wasn't too technical for you. No, no, it was really I good. I kind to, of assumed you were interested, but I was, I was, I was. I was but it was, it's a lot. It was really well. The history lesson. I love the history, and I love the.